You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So today was lay the day. Yeah, exciting. And I'm still here. It showed up. Is it powered? Yep. What's the status? No. So we're, this is a slow roll install. Mm-hmm. We just wanted to get it. We had a deadline. We had to get it out of the other shop space by the end of January. Mm-hmm. And so we had it rigged out yesterday. Two of my guys went up there, had gone up last week to prep the machine, make sure all the shipping brackets were installed, all that stuff. And then they met the riggers at this other shop up in Indy yesterday mm-hmm. and got it loaded up, tarped up. It was stored overnight. And then the riggers brought it down first thing this morning. Mm-hmm. And we had had to move one CNC machine and a whole bunch of racks and benches and other things to have access for a fork truck that big into that corner of the shop. Yep. You called me. You had a question on site. What was it? Uh, it was a question about whether or not it was safe to decouple the bar loader from the floor. The bar loader was anchored down to the concrete. That's and right. I wanted to be mm-hmm. sure that it was safe for us to unanchor it and let it sit for a few days before it got rigged out or whether there was any kind of issue with it being top heavy, unstable, getting bumped or knocked over or whatever. And you said, nope, not a problem. Did you find shipping brackets for it? I wasn't up there. I told Brian that there should be shipping brackets and I never followed up to ask. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, So by now you've probably figured out that the, what's bolted down is a track and then the bar feeder slides forward and backwards. So when ours arrived, it was neither in the forward or backwards position. It was in a center position with the shipping brackets in place. So hopefully that's how it arrived. Yeah, I'm not sure actually. I didn't okay, pay, I didn't pay attention to that detail. Okay, yeah, um, good. But it's here, and mm-hmm. the the rigging in everything seemed to go smoothly. It was we had enough room to get everything comfortably in and out, mm-hmm. which was great. Yep. And the riggers were a little bit early. They got here sooner than I thought with the machine this morning. They made good time, mm-hmm. and so everything went great there. And this was the first time we'd had a machine rigged in where I really didn't have to do anything. I wasn't That's great. didn't have to be present for most of that process. I checked in occasionally. But Chris and Brian were taking care of that, and they had been the ones who had prepped the machines. They'd talked to the riggers the previous day, and they were very comfortable, and it all went fine. They had to bring a large steel plate. Okay. So they actually brought the chip conveyor, the bar feeder, and the lathe on one flatbed truck, Mm -hmm. and then trucked their forklift on a separate truck. Mm -hmm. And so they had a steel plate under the forklift. They dropped the forklift off, drove the forklift onto our pad, backed the truck up parallel to it lifted the steel plate off, pulled that truck out, pulled the other truck in and set the plate down next to it so that they could be on steel or concrete mm-hmm. the whole time the forklift was carrying a load. Yeah, that's great. And then they so just now, forked that plate back onto the truck and head out. Yeah. So, okay. So they brought it in. What brand of conveyor did that machine have? Do you remember? I don't remember, but I can look. I See, that's like the thing. LMS. L- yeah, LNS. LNS, um, maybe. There's Jorgensen. There's one other. I'll go back and look at the original specs. That's the funny thing about so so when you buy a Doosan or a DN, I guess they're called. It has an L- LNS chip conveyor. LNS, yeah. Okay, that's good. Uh, well, I think they're all good, but yeah, you have to go to third party, even high pressure pumps. You have to go with MNP Systems. That's one that's recommended mm-hmm. as far as high pressure coolant. So it's a different buying experience if you're buying a Doosan. Yep. Yeah. So we do not have the install and commissioning mm-hmm. visit scheduled yet. It also turned out that we had our brother tech here today. Oh, The machine that he was supposed <laughs> to be working on was the one that we had to disconnect from air and power and skate across the room into a corner to get it out of the way. 
Okay. So we found out yesterday he was going to be here today to install a thing that they couldn't install last time because he'd gotten sent the wrong component from their supply side, whatever the deal was. But he was going to be in the area. I didn't want to make him make another drive down from the north side of Indy just to do this hour-long project to install this control thing. Mm-hmm. So we had to rig up a long, heavy-duty temporary extension cord and drag an airline and then move away the cabinets and cart and stuff that we had packed up against that side of the machine. Because we basically just moved everything out of one-third of bay one and just jammed it all together in the other half of the room mm-hmm. to make plenty of maneuvering space for the forklift. Yep. So today it was a zoo in the shop. When you said the brother technician was there, I think, you know, that awkward moment when FedEx and UPS shows up at your shop at the same time. <laughs> I was thinking that was happening, but it doesn't matter because brother doesn't sell lathes. So what does he care? Yamazin does sell lathes. Okay. That's a different story. Speaking of competing machines. So I just found out, I think it was this week that Haas released a new DC one drill center. Yeah. Hey, brother killer. <laughs> There's been plenty of chuckles about that in brother circles. Did you um, see Danny Rudolph's post about it? Yes. Yeah, yes. that's good. Can you um, quote it? Sorry, I, brothers, I'm it's just, over, I think. I'm just happy to see more compact machining centers of that type because I think they do fill a really interesting niche mm-hmm. where a, a lot of small shops, if the only thing they were aware of is like, I got to go VF1 or VF2, mm-hmm. depending on what they're making, they actually might be able to get a lot more utility out of a smaller drill mill style machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially if they think about, if they have a VF1, VF2, whatever, and they want to add an even more compact, faster machine, mm-hmm. not yeah. having to change controls, not having to go outside that ecosystem, I think makes a ton of sense. I'm sure House is going to sell a bunch of those and I think we'll see more and more of them. If I were buying my first CNC machine right now, I would definitely consider it. Haas has a lot going for it, but they didn't have a machine in that class mm-hmm. when I was buying my first CNC. You know, it's interesting. I'd like to hear more from Haas's perspective about, and they did have a, a release video about it, but it does kind of compete with the mini mill. It also does kind of compete with their DT, DM machines, their yep. BT lines. It's just interesting. I, it, you, and especially when you look at the tool changer, it is like very much the brother style. And I would yep. say, just looking at the video, it's not as fast as the brother's. So I would not buy one. It's just not, it doesn't fit our needs, Yeah, but it's interesting. I, I appreciate Haas for the fact that they always got something coming down in the pipeline. And then things, they pull out machines out of production sometimes. Like we saw that with their HD350, which was their smaller five axis machine that was smaller than their UMC500 that I have. And it's just interesting. I did hear that it's coming back. It's just being redesigned. Gotcha. But, yeah. So when you look at that, because this is in- interesting to me, like you see that as a specific niche. I just see it as like, oh, it's competing with head to head on this brother or something. What is, what do you like about the brother compared to a DM or DT from Haas? So the DM and the DT, as far as I recall, neither of those was an option. Those are my, I bought my first Speedio in 2015 and I think the DTs came out after that. Mm. And at that point I was already invested. I'd learned one control. I'd learned one whole set of things. I liked the brother system. It worked well for me. Yeah, And so every time I was looking at a new machine, I wasn't really seriously considering mixing brands or mixing control types in the shop. When I look at it, I see just a very compact footprint machine. The fact that you can get it with a 15 or 20,000 RPM spindle, I look at that and go, if you've got a lot of production parts to run and you're running small tools and you're mostly cutting things like aluminum and you don't need more than 20 some pockets, mm-hmm. 
this has a lot of advantages. You'll be able to get more parts off this machine in the same amount of time. If you fixture for density, it can be extremely productive. You can still get good walkaway times. And you have the advantage of the same controls, the same menu, the same everything else as bigger, heavier machines. But I've always seen tons of photos of guys with like a VF5 with like four vices on the table and like 80% yeah. of the workspace just not utilized. Um, there's a particular shop I was thinking of that I believe they've got a couple of VF7s. And their approach is big, almost full table fixtures that they're clamping very long pieces of bar stock down into and then nibbling that up into hundreds of small parts. Mm-hmm. But then they have to flip them over for op two and then tighten a pit bull clamp for every single one of those parts. Mm-hmm. So their machine is just sitting there doing nothing for like yeah. an hour mm-hmm. while you change over all your parts, flip them from op one to op two. Mm-hmm. And I look at that and go, that shop could fit at least two DCs in the footprint of that VF7 and have one operator tending them and their tool change yep. times would be faster. Their chip to chip times would be way faster. The size of the bar stock they'd be loading on the table would be way smaller. You could still do full table pieces of bar stock, but on the DC1, that's going to be a much smaller table. Those parts will be easier to handle. You'll have, there's a lot of things where I go, two of these small machines would kick the pants off a bigger VMC if the Mm -hmm. parts fit. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think one of my most recent videos, I said, look, we're going to talk about this because we did, it was a fixture Friday. I'm going to say in the 23, 24, something like that. And in that fixture Friday, I talked about like we were making our air valves on the horizontal. Why are we content with this quote unquote improvement when the cycle time is about the same? And it really comes down to production theory. Whereas we can have this machine just running lights out, heavily loaded up with the tombstones, or in this case, we had rotovices, four of them. And yeah, I've always said that two machines, average speed machines with two spindles is always going to beat one like super speed machine. Just yep. because of just the raw number of spindles that are turning simultaneously. Yeah. And yeah, I look at like those, we do sell a lot of our pallet systems, mostly our pro pallet systems to guys that have kind of the legacy approach. Like you put six vices on a large VF6, VF8 machine, and then you just, there's, you go, oh, wow, I've got eight parts on it. Yeah. But do you realize that, well, my thing is to beat up on vices is the majority of the vice body is just the vice body, the actual holding area, the utility is much smaller. So our yeah. pallet systems have hundred percent coverage over their footprint and more because the base is roughly eight by 12 and our biggest pallets 10 by 16. And we see all these customers just loading them up and then walking away. That's the other thing. So yeah, yeah it's nice to see the industry kind of go to smaller, faster machines rather than the big high horsepower machines. Cause it's really with high speed machining tool paths, it's way more efficient. Yeah. And the other thing about vices, going back to Shigao Shingo's single minute exchange of dies, is the idea that vices force you to do more setup internally mm-hmm. and have the machine down while you're doing it. All your loading and unloading time mm-hmm. is happening with the doors open and the machine not running. Yeah. Now you can get around that with a twin table machine like a Brother R series, mm-hmm. but the, the DC doesn't solve that and a VF7 doesn't solve that. The time that you lose, just increases the more vices you put on that table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's actually another interesting machine that I haven't quite figured out how I'd ever use it. Did you know that Brother makes a horizontal? I don't think I know that. Let me look it up. The H550XD1. Is this not at trade shows and 
This is not videos about there's this. videos. Okay. But I've never seen one of these in person. I don't think I don't think they had it at IMTS last time. Okay. And the interesting thing about it initially looking at the machine, it looks like it's a single horizontal pallet inside the machine. There's no twin table pallet changer. I'm not sure if they have this, if this is designed to be set up with some ancillary cell next to it for loading and unloading, mm-hmm. but just the machine as it stands, I look at it and go, I don't get it. Now, what is it again? What's it called? H550XD1. Wow. No, I've definitely not run across it. But I'm fascinated. It's a brother, super fast, and it's a horizontal. Mm-hmm. That that gets my gears turning in interesting ways. I yeah. don't have any plans to get one, but this is certainly a machine that at some point at IMTS, I'd like to stand in front of this machine for a bit and figure out what brother imagines the optimum use case for this mm-hmm. type of machine to be mm-hmm. and what kind of clients they would recommend it to. Yeah. See, that's the problem. If you don't have a twin table like configuration, it's just right. you have that idle spindle time. That, that just and how, does, how do you get the tombstone in and out? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Wow. Huh. So it might be the kind of thing where they imagine that to be cobot loaded mm-hmm. all the time. It goes in a cell, you put a pallet of blanks next to it, or you set it up with like a, one of their Flex 2 systems and it just is being loaded by robots. You have hydraulic or pneumatic automatic clamping systems and the door just opens, robot grabs a part, loads a part, closes the door and the machine just runs and runs and runs. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm doing my 2024 machinery planning and there's two machines. We're probably most likely going to get another a horizontal and I have the rep from, I don't remember the distributor, but for the, the Kitamuras, I'm just fascinated with the My Center 250 or 300 horizontal. Mm-hmm. And then also interested in another EC400 because we know that. And then, of course, an Okamoto grinder. But yeah, it's just one of those things. It's like horizontal. That's the productivity gains through horizontal is the twin setups. So essentially, the spindle never stops turning. But yeah, I can see how this H550 XD1 brother is kind of a a tough sell. Well, yeah, depending on what they're specking it for, it could be either really awesome for a particular Mm -hmm. application or kind of not quite right for anything. Tantalizingly almost high productivity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also weirdly frustrating in ways that would kind of poison the whole thing. But So I would approach this machine that it horizontal you can do high density cuz you can load up multi-sided fixtures. Yep. So it would be a great machine that you kind of towards the end of the day maybe all your other machines your verticals are set up and running then in the last couple hours you set up the horizontal and it runs through the night. I yep. could see that. Yeah. But yeah, and it would also it would also depend a lot on what your parts are. If you're loading up a complicated larger piece of aluminum and the parts got an 8-hour runtime, mm-hmm. then yeah, the changeover time is not nearly as impactful in terms of overall uptime. Yeah. But you know, your setup with you have your R machine with I know you only have ro- one rotary unit right now, but we've done a few sales with where they'll sell like an R650 and then a T200 rotary table, and then yep. they put two rotovices on it. And that's like almost like the poor man's horizontal. Yep. And it works beautifully. If you're doing small parts, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Probably huh. that 650 is going to end up eventually with two rotaries and two rotovices on it. Mm-hmm. But we want to get everything proved out and really figured out and then have that second table mm-hmm. be available for whatever else we need. If we need to put a vice on it or make a little fixture, clamp, fixture table for something, we yeah. don't want to have 
an underutilized and expensive rotary setup on table two that we're not using all the time. Yeah. Because we can buy it later. We can always add it if we need that capacity. It's a known quantity. And we will probably have learned some things about how we want to set up the next one. The longer we use the first one, there'll be certain things where we go, oh, we really like this, but we really don't like that. And I really like this, but I don't like that. And find some improvements to be made when we install a second one. Yeah. Now you have just one 650, right? One R650. Yes. Okay. We have one 650 and two 450s. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, man, that's awesome. So now you have work for this lathe, right? We have some work for this lathe. We've got a few parts ourselves that we're going to be moving off a mill onto a lathe immediately. Great. Those are not super high volume parts, mm -hmm. but we can certainly make them in higher volume more easily now mm -hmm. with a lot less handling. And that will either allow us potentially to go out and offer some discounts. Those are parts we resell to other holster makers primarily. Mm -hmm. And potentially we could lower the price on those. If we can lower our cost of manufacture, mm -hmm. we could make them available in larger quantities more easily and give discounts that way. We could even potentially offer some, maybe some customization. Yeah. If somebody wants to order a, a thousand of these little competition style retention adjuster knobs, mm -hmm. we can do something different with them for them. Now, do these parts have milled features on them or are they just strictly turned? They have some milled features on them. Not oh, a lot. Great. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine just like a little propeller head knob that's got three lobes and then a center boss that's internally threaded. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy. It's just got an outside profile that has to be milled. So it's milling cutter in line with the spindle and then a chamfer tool in line with the spindle to trace that shape and just deeper the front edge. Great. So not complicated milling, no surfacing, just a couple 2D profiles done with a 3 8 inch end mill and mm -hmm. then a quick chamfer tool. Pretty easy stuff. So quick pro tip on that. If you're going to use live tools, if you can always use the radial tool, not the one that's axial, like the one that comes out at a right angle. Axial, okay, so there's some debate about this. What we call in-house is if it's an axial tool, it comes out of the turret and it's geared to, to face, it, it spins in the same axis as the, it's parallel to the spindles basically. Okay. And so radial is better because there's no gearing because we just had another axial tool block go down because hmm. we, it's, I could hear it from my office and I'm going, what is that? And I come out there and I thought, well, it sounds like my old belt driven model year 2000 super mini mill. What the heck is going on? And I'm walking around the shop with this confused look on my face. And my guy, Alex says, it's the lathe. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so we go over there and sure enough, Armando's on it. And I said, Armando, here's how we discovered that this, this right angle tool head went bad. It was sounding like this. And I went and got my FLIR thermal gun. And after it ran, I took an image of it and it was uh, like 180 degrees or something like that. There was like s steam coming off of it. It was so hot. And so we had to send it back to the manufacturer. I'm pretty sure it was Eppinger. So yeah, I'd keep an eye on those. Okay. They, they knew they should sound quiet. You'll hear them, but they should not be screaming. You'll, they'll get have a high pitch whine when they're yeah. bad. The other possibility, which we may do depending on how we want to make them, is we may just cut blanks and then drop them into a quick fixture on one of the speedios because the parts we could make a fully cylindrical all turned slug for each of these little parts and then just drop it in a fixture. There's no clocking or alignment. We could just mm. put it in a little fixture and then quickly mill in and chamfer the lobe. Sure. I would prefer to not have it cross two machines. If I can avoid it, I'd rather have it come off the conveyor on the lathe fully done. Oh yeah. But if for any reason it can't. Yep. Yeah. Oh, well. What's the OD on those parts? 0.8 inch. Okay. So you'd make it out of one inch? 
Yeah, I think we would. We'd be using one inch aluminum bar stock. Okay. Did it, what kind of collet system did it come with? Or is it just royal collets? Great. The quick grip. Yep. Great. Excellent. Man, that, that little clunky hand tool that makes that really satisfying chunk. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty fun. The yellow hand tool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun one. Wow. That's great. So when, okay. Uh, another question, because you bought it used, do you need to pay for the technician to come out and set it up yes. even though it's a young machine? Yep. So installation, commissioning, any training, all that is paid time service call. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. We'll be fine. And we're taking this lathe on at a time when we do not have any deadlines mm-hmm. for parts that have to come off this lathe. It's good. So we can transition work onto it at our own pace. Mm-hmm. We can take the time to get comfortable using it, really get it set the way we want and not have to be like, by hook or by crook, we have to be running production parts in the next 72 hours. No, right. not yeah. doing that. I don't need the blood pressure increase no, that comes no. from taking on things like that. No, you made a good long-term decision. There's no reason to rush that type of stuff. Talk to me about tooling. What kind of tooling did it come with? What brand? Most of the tooling we got with it is Kenna Metal. We might have a few odds and ends that are other stuff. I haven't actually looked at the tooling carefully. Chris looked over it all and said he liked what he saw. There are a few other things we're going to obviously get because it's not. it didn't come with all the every single tool that we would want and nothing that we don't. It had a mix of what the previous owner had spec'd for jobs he was going to do, which are not the same work that we're going to do. So yeah. There's some stuff in there that's not necessarily super applicable to us immediately. Mm-hmm. And there are a few things that we're going to have to go out and get anyway, but I think it's a decent starter package and I'm really excited about it. Wow. We have so- to move one more CNC machine to have room to get the LNS conveyor in place. So the lathe and the bar feeder are placed. They will need to have a service call from IAMCA to align the bar feeder and get it all working, clean bill of health on that once we have the lathe commissioned. But there isn't room for the end of the chip conveyor until we move both of our R450s. So oh. the R450s are side by side. We're actually flipping them around to the opposite wall of the shop. Mm-hmm. We're, it, we really are doing a total relayout. Every single CNC machine is moving. Yeah, that's great. That's well, great. it's great. It's, it's an awful lot of work. Yeah. I was, did you map it out like in Fusion or anything? Yeah, yeah. We, so we did two things. We actually did, we did a scale model with mm-hmm. laser cut blocks. Yeah. So we just did, did a little sand table in our break room, mm-hmm. put up two folding tables, taped off a proportional scale measurement of the room, mm-hmm. and then dropped all these cardboard labeled shapes. So that was a cool project. We figured we took measurements on everything, reduced them by a fixed scale so that everything stayed proportional, then gave all those filings to Riley, who runs our laser. And she cut out a ton of cardboard. Chris cut some too, but we cut out a bunch of these cardboard parts and then put thermal labels on all of them. So every single thing is labeled. So we know what it is. Yeah. And then we can just mess around with them and say, okay, what if we put this over here? And this thing goes with it. And that bench goes there and we put a bench there. How does that work? Chris, mm-hmm. if you're working over here, which of these areas are you using? And we went through several complete different layouts of the room to arrive at the one that we finally settled on. And then we photographed it. So we had a record of the layout. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then we're gradually going to be migrating the machines. We had to buy some skates to move the machines nothing's leaving the room. It's all just shifting around in the same bay. So we're not like taking all the tooling out of the machines. We're not taking the fixturing off the tables. We are going to center and drop the spindle. So it's center of gravity and weight is low on the R-series machines, but we're not forking them anywhere. We're literally just jacking each foot up a little bit, mm-hmm. sliding a skate under and setting it down. Right. Yeah. That's fun. The 650, which is our largest mill, two and a half people, can comfortably push it around once it's on skates. It's just bulky. 
Yeah, right. A lot of mass moving. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. I've done, gosh, probably six, seven, eight layouts in Fusion. Every time it looks perfect, we print it out, and then we start to move machines around. We go, oh, yeah, the human factor. Yeah, it's kind of tight behind the wall. I know it's 36 inches of clearance. Or we wanted to, at, at one time we did 30, 32 inches because we're like, yeah, the technician, he doesn't need to open the door all the way as <laughs> well. But when we had a super small shop. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that, that human factor. You get in there and you're just like, it just doesn't feel right. We're going to call an audible. We're just going to bump the aisle with just a little bit bigger. We're like in our current shop, we got in there and I went, I really like this 12 foot aisle. But then when we put the first machine there, I just said, guys, picture yourself working here. We, we rolled up some carts. We bumped it to 16 feet from 12 to 16 feet just to open it up just because we could. Mm-hmm. Now, that caused us to have to almost stagger the machines because we would have an aisle between the next row of machines over. And there's kind of like this aisle in between the two machines on the back sides. And then we just ended up staggering them so they kind of fit in like a, like a sawtooth or a comb pattern or a zipper pattern, I guess you could say, which was fine. It worked great. And then because then you open the back door and it's opening into a spot where there's two adjacent machines. And so it's those little things where, you know, that when you have the, the 2D patterns, you moved it around. We did that one time and it worked great. Then you start to realize where your drops are going to be, your air drops, that type of thing. And then another thing would be, we have two coolant, 55-gallon coolant drums, just so we're not transporting them around. All those little things, they just completely changed the whole layout of the shop just because of those little ancillary equipment pieces. Well, for us, the skates are an investment in future flexibility and getting comfortable using them Mm -hmm. and getting comfortable shifting machines around in our own space is, I think, going to be a tool we continue to use in the future. And certainly sure. the ability to move machines out of the way quickly and safely on our own time ahead of having riggers come if we need to have a machine brought in or taken out is itself a huge piece. Mm-hmm. But just being able to say, hey, we want to move this machine just 10 inches further away from the wall, or we want to move it 18 inches over to get a little more aisle space here and have that be a thing we can just do mm-hmm. is yeah. very, very freeing. Because up till now, when we put a machine in place, you, you might as well have poured it into the slab. Because mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, it's never moving at that point. Because yeah. I don't have the experience or the tools to move it. But Chris and Brian are both very comfortable doing that, having moved a lot of other equipment. And so I'm extremely grateful to have them. And I'm happy to invest in the tools for them to be able to do that. Yep. Yeah, that's good. And yep. Chris was actually really, really excited when we first started shifting things around. And I said, by the way, have you ever seen a DigiPass? And he goes, nope. Have you seen a DigiPass? No. So it's a digital precision level, like you would put a machinist level, a toy or something really nice okay. on a machine table to level the machine and adjust the feet. The DigiPass is a high accuracy, Bluetooth enabled digital Very level. Very cool. Yeah. And it syncs to an app on your phone. Nice. So you can leave the level on the table and go around to that one back corner foot where you're halfway under the machine with your head tucked under there, yeah. cranking on the wrench and be reading the live readout off the scale on your phone, right in front of your face. That's so great. It takes the whole guess and check, half a turn, nope, half a turn more, nope, half a turn more, and every time you have to walk around to the front of the machine. Right. It's so much nicer. That's a much better investment. Because we have skates, but I always choose to just have the riggers do it, especially on a machine delivery day. Hey guys, while you're here, can we bump that over 20 feet? I'll give you 50 bucks cash. We've always done it that way and they're happy to do that. But 
the leveling process. And really, that's not a one-time thing, especially no, when you move a- machines into a new spot. You should check the level often, at least. Like, for example, our UMC, it was level on day one. We went back one week later, it was out of level. Three months later, it was out of level, and then it was set. So as the ground kind of, either the machine is settling or the ground is settling, one or the other, I'm pretty sure it's going to be the machine. No, that's something companies should check often. Like we've, we don't have that digital version. We have a machinist level, but it's a two-man job. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Turning that into a one-man job. The other thing that Chris had to go out and get today was he had to go out and get a two-inch box wrench. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, because yeah. the, the feet on the do center are quite this honking big wrench and I didn't yeah. have anything that big. And he said it on the counter. I walk, I'm like, oh man, a new attitude adjuster. Hey, Anthony, <laughs> come here. I'm like walking up behind him with this giant wrench. Yeah. that Those wrenches, we have one of those and it's a adjustable wrench. It's pretty wrench. silly. <laughs> it's fun because it, you, I've never felt smaller as a human holding that. You have this big like, giant tool, 30 inch long adjustable wrench. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. That's cool. So what's going on with you guys? We've been talking a lot about my lathe and my shop. Yeah, it's been a good start to the year. We're just past the halfway point of January and we're seeing lots of, I can tell that our client base is going, okay, 2024 is the year that we're going big because we're selling lots and lots of road devices, lots of pallet systems, not just one pallet system. Like we'll see orders come across three, four, five pallet systems. Like they're taking their VF5, 6, 7, and they're getting rid of the devices and then they're palletizing them. So they have them anyways. We're seeing lots of that. Our Max 4, our small fourth axis pallet system, that's on our store page. I'm waiting to build out with more content on our company page, but that's still selling. Every, I would say like fifth or sixth tech call that I don't do tech calls a lot, but I'm like the fourth in line to answer the phones. And when it does come to me, I'm just trying to ask people, hey, by the way, can you pull you really quick? Are you aware of our Max 4 PAL system? Oh, no, I'm not. Can I, are you on your website? Great. Here we go. Let's check it out. And out of probably the five or six times I've done that, we've sold three. So I'm batting 500. Nice. And it's great. And it's just, we develop these products. When I develop a product, I put it together. It's got to solve an in-house problem first. We use it for a while. And then if we know, hey, this is great, we're going to release it to the masses. And I know that like fourth axis rotary units are just underutilized in the industry. So of course, our rotovice is an easy adoption to that. But a palletized system where you have circular pallets or longer pallets, that I know it's a scratch and an itch in the industry. So that's we're going to lean into that. The next three, I would say out of the next five videos that are co- going to come out, three of them are going to be Max 4 related. And then probably in the second quarter, we're going to release our Max 5. That's for the larger five-axis machines. And that's why I bought the CMM, because it has these tapered cones that not just to measure the correct taper and diameter of the cones, but to measure them in relation to their neighboring cones. We needed a CMM for that. So we're really excited to bring that online. So yeah, we're chipping away little by little. Oh, and our pallet vice, uh, or uh, what are we calling it? We had a debate the other day. Is it a pallet vice or is it a vice pallet? And I'm calling it a vice pallet, but it's basically a pallet. It's eight by 16 and it has two double station, three inch wide vices. Because you, if you have one of our pro pallet systems, you just need to hold something. You throw it on a turn of the handle and there's two parallel screws. You can hold up to four parts in independently. We're putting the finishing touches on that. It's fun because I thought, yeah, it's perfect. And then my guy, Alex, he's like, great. Can I try it on the horizontal? You sure can. And then the whole assembly like kind of fell from gravity. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's rare that these will go on horizontals. 
but let's redesign it so that if it did go into a horizontal application, the jaws don't fall because of gravity. So yeah, it's coming together. We're excited. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what else is going on here. We hired two new employees Fun. so far in January and they are in training right now. They're both in our finishing department. Great. And that's going great. They're both learning well. They're progressing quickly, making good parts. Mm-hmm. There are no shortage of opportunities to realize places where we don't have complete documentation. Every time you find new people, mm. everybody who knows to step around that hole in the floor, they yeah. come walking through the room and they fall right in it because it's right there and you just never covered it up. Yep. So that's a really valuable thing for us. We had to go over in the morning meeting today, we had a batch of 500 parts we were making mm-hmm. and a hundred of them got defected out mid-assembly mm-hmm. yesterday. They are reworkable. We just have to go back and redo part of the assembly. Mm-hmm. But there was a subtle alignment thing that I knew about and I knew how to hold the part and orient it correctly and make sure that the critical things lined up, mm-hmm. but we didn't have a fixture for it. And my the guy who was teaching the new employee, he knew how to do it, but he just there wasn't a fixture for it. And it's one of those things where you can show a person something, but you can't understand for sure what exactly they're seeing yeah. about it. Right. Plus the fact of it, does it go from a science to an art? Yes. Sometimes like it does. Like knife blade finishing or sharpening, that's an art. Yep. Yeah. And so when we realized we had this problem and we were going, when it progressed to the next stage of assembly and the next person's like, hey, these parts have been attached together and they're not aligned quite properly. Mm-hmm. We have to go back and drill out a bunch of brass eyelet fasteners that are, they're not threaded. They are, they're flared in place. Mm-hmm. So it'll be some work to remove them, but the parts are all salvageable. And so this morning I was devising 3D printed jigs. We went through three whole revisions today, mm-hmm. finding different ways of shaping the jig and different tolerances for the features it's lining up on to make sure we had a good balance of the jig being easy to load and unload, making it poke yoked so you can't put the parts in upside down and having it be accurate enough to give the location we need without fitting so tightly that it you have to jam the parts in and then peel them out. Yeah. So that balance of easy to load, but accurate enough to actually matter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, tomorrow we start reassembling parts using the new V3 little mm-hmm. jig. And hopefully that solves the problem. And there's a whole family of parts like it that we don't have assembly fixtures for any of them mm-hmm. and have always done them more by art than science. Yeah. And so this is an opportunity to go, okay, well, Now that we've got this process step for this family of parts figured out, we're going to roll it out across all the parts in the family. Yeah, that's great. No reason to mess around with doing it any any other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just get it fixed. Do it right. Hey, I was kind of a sidetrack. Do you laser engrave anything? Would you have that application need? We don't currently laser engrave anything. Okay. Really. Uh, We do have a fiber laser that we don't use. That's one of my goals in 24 is to get that set up at a permanent workstation and get a workflow around it because there are certainly things that we would laser, that I would laser if that station was set up and operational and easy to just walk up to. Right now, it would involve getting it off a rack, putting it on a rolling bench, plugging it into power, firing it up. It's just too much work. Would you use it for cutting or actually marking? We'd use our fiber laser for marking. Mm-hmm. We, we do a lot of cutting on our CO2 lasers, mostly of plastics and fabrics, but rastering things with a CO2 laser is slow. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's flying optics. No, I bring this up because I just, I felt like 
okay, so I came into the shop yesterday. I had so many things to do, like big picture stuff. And one of them was getting the laser set up. We've got a 20 watt fiber laser and we're starting to engrave our logo and the, oh, the part, the component designation on our Max 4 base. And it's complicated because it's on a curved surface. There's nothing flat about it. And and it's in hardened 17-4 stainless that's bead okay. blasted. And so I'm just like, what a challenge, right? So I just went through all these videos on YouTube. And it's really cool because I got the settings just right. And the first ones I did, it was more of like, you could feel it, like it etched it. And it was like, it was black, but it was more of a dark gray. Mm-hmm. And I came across this one video where they said, yeah, you just need to do this. And here's the trick. You take it out of focus by three millimeters and then run it. I'm like, what? Come on. What is this? That's like wives tales type stuff. Yeah. So stand on your left foot when you press cycle start. Yeah, exactly. Like what kind of hack is this? I've never read that in a manual, but so I created a focus stick. So on, just so people know, a fiber laser has no moving, externally moving parts. It's got a mirror internally that moves very fast. And they have different lenses that have different widths, different lengths, that type of thing. So if you look on it, it'll tell you the focal length is 100, in our particular case, is 183 millimeters. I've 3D printed a focus stick that touches the bottom of the lens, and then it extends 183 millimeters, and that's your flat spot, your Z0, essentially. It was tricky because maybe I'll post this on Instagram, on our lean site, (laughs) whatever that account is. And because I had to build a fixture to hold the Max 4 base at an angle, then I needed to create an insert that would give it a flat spot so I could use the focus stick. And and it can't focus, where it's engraving is not below the lens, it's offset about two inches. It's a very, I, it's a total of three 3D printed parts, actually four 3D printed parts that we came up with. And then I printed one that was like a, the, an extra three millimeters. So 186 millimeters focus stick did it. I'm like, here we go. Andrew, like one of the most satisfying wins in the last 12 months easily. It looked ah. black. It was shiny. It looked like paint. It was durable. It looked like screen printed onto this surface. And keep in mind, it's a curved surface and it's bead blasted and it looked beautiful. Like I just couldn't believe it. So I was walking throughout the shop holding a Max 4 base above my head, like going, woo, yeah. Walk around. People are like, okay, well, Jay's happy. He must've figured something out. Went into the assembly room. Check it out. I was so excited. It was like such a huge win. So of course, now that I know this, I want to engrave everything in this beautiful black. (laughs) So that's pretty fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Having those kinds of wins where we get really excited about something, Uh huh. it's just such a nice- Well, it's rare, first of all. Yeah. And so I felt that was my Super Bowl. That was my trophy, my Max 4 base with that beautiful black engraving. That was a Super Bowl trophy to me. Oh man, my team got knocked out of the playoffs this past weekend. I'm a Bills fan. And- Uh-oh. Yeah. It was a special heartbreak in this game in particular to have it come down to a field goal at the end of the game and have the kicker miss wide right. Because that's the infamous way that Scott Norwood missed his kick in the first of those four Super Bowls. Put it up, went wide right, and the Giants won the game. And then we're up against it with the Chiefs. We got a little bit of time left. It's like a 47-yarder. It's not an easy field goal, and it's really windy. And he puts it up, and it was so far right. And everyone was just like, no, this can't be happening again. Not the same scenario, an end of game field goal. 
and missing it to the right, just so, heartbreaking. So it was end of game. It was field goal. It was playoffs. It was windy. That's called tolerance stack up. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the, that's the, it's a difficult material. It's got very, very tight positional tolerances and super high surface finish requirements. Right. No, yeah. no quote Yikes. that. Oh, speaking of this, I was talking to this dude and I don't know how it came up, but uh, I go way back with him. I've known him for over 20 years, a former church guy. We were at this party and we were talking just football and stuff like that. And I don't know how we got on the subject, but I brought up this construction site that was on our street. We're on the street called Cochrane. It's kind of like a main thoroughfare through Simi Valley and how there's this big project over there. And he said, oh, that's our construction site. And he works for a general contractor, big commercial general contractor. They do a lot of the restaurants at LAX. They do big stuff. And I'm going, no way. That's amazing. So who's the client? And he said, no, that's us. We're, we bought that land like 15 years ago. We've got all the permits. We're finally breaking ground. We're going to build this big building, occupy 51% of it, which I think is the biggest racket in real estate, which is concrete tilt-up buildings. They're really popular here in California. Steel buildings are much more economical and you could put them up if you've got the right equipment. But concrete tilt-ups, very durable. The thing is you build them and there's like probably five of these concrete tilt-up business parks being developed here in Simi Valley. And they're putting them up and it's really like when you look at it compared to a house, you literally tilt them up and then it's held together by anchoring at the ground and then the trusses on the roof. And they sell for millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it's like this distant, like if I'm in my 60s or 70s, like I would love to do some type of business park with concrete tilt up. So we may have to cut it short today because I'm, I texted him. I said, I, dude, I got to see the first wall go up. They're doing it today. But do you guys have concrete tilt ups in your area? Our church is all concrete tilt up. Okay. Yeah. It looks like it's just a big box. We, yeah. Years ago, when we built it, we were trying to find the most around here, the most economical way uh-huh. to get the most floor under roof we could. Yeah. And one of the guys in our church was retired, but he used to build huge refrigerated warehouses and things. So he had tons of connections. Okay. And he agreed to volunteer his time to GC the building of the church, wow. which was amazing. Well, but we went tip up concrete and it is, it's not pretty. Oh, but no. It's super no. durable. So yeah, especially in an area with inclement weather, as long as there's a decent roof, yeah, it's kind of the place where you want to be if there's a tornado rolling through, right? You would think. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember the economics of it? Was it cheaper than like a steel building? I don't recall. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Been a while. We, I think we started that building in 2007. So that, that has receded into the mists of time. Yeah, me. sure. And the economy was different back then. I was not particularly tuned into the what does commercial space cost kind of question back then. I was of course I was just finishing grad school. So you're thinking about musical equipments. Yeah, I was my all my money was being spent on guitars, basses, and amplifiers. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of money and it wasn't a lot of guitars and basses and amplifiers, but it was all the money I had at the time. Yeah. Well, next time we talk on the next podcast, I'll give you the rundown of that. Cause I do feel it's it's literal like five pieces of concrete, the slab and four walls, and then the this cheap trusses. Yep. So when we were looking to put either solar or HVAC units on our roof, we went back to the original plans and the factor of safety on our trusses was like 1.2, meaning it was not designed to hold weight. 
especially their static and dynamic weight. I think if, let's just call it that. Dynamic is like a person walking across the roof. Static is like you actually put something that's going to live there permanently, like some type of HVAC unit. But I was shocked. We had to put them above the posts. We have two posts in the middle of the building. They run down like it's kind of the backbone. And we have to build these platforms that are pretty beefy. And then we put our HVAC, our condenser units on it. But I was surprised that they would just go with such a low factor of safety. And they go, yeah, because if you went to 1.5 or 2, you're just paying for more weight and there's no need to do it. And it's just, you got to keep that cost down. So yeah, concrete tilt-up says there's, gosh, I think there's opportunity there if you know how to do it. Yeah. So if you've got to go check out that cool building, we should wrap up. I wanted to mention, I did finally start reading Rocket Fuel this week. I Ooh, had been awesome. putting it off. It had been on my little side table in my room at home and I hadn't gotten around to reading it. And I think my initial reaction is, I think the visionary versus integrator or visionary plus integrator categorization is helpful. But I think what he means when he says visionary is not what anybody who hasn't read his book hears when they hear the word visionary. And that there's a there's enough of a definitional disconnect there that talking to somebody about it, if they haven't read the book, a lot's going to get lost in translation. And yeah, that yeah, that's when we going back, uh, I don't know, probably 10 podcasts, I got some pushback or not pushback, just questions like, wow, you, you see yourself as a visionary? Well, no, visionary is not a type of person. It's a role in the company. It's a that's function. the biggest. Yeah, it's a function. Yeah, that's good. And and I don't really, he said in the book, if you map to 80% of these characteristics, you're functionally a visionary. And I don't map to all of them. I have a lot of integrator tendencies. I really like the details. I like finishing things. I definitely have met people who are creative entrepreneurial types who have a thousand ideas a week and they're constantly pivoting and pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. Every latest shiny object captures their attention. Yep. And I'm not that way. Mm-hmm. I'm not that ADD, although I have my ADD moments for sure. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. Figuring out whether I would be better suited to be a number two in a company versus a number one is a question that I've always wrestled with for a long, long time and never really come down to a clear answer on because there are places in the company where absolutely clear, 100%, I am in the number one seat here. I make these decisions. I understand what's going on. My intuition and my judgment and the results back that up. And in other places, I'm like, I don't know what to do here. I just kind of want to build little lean improvements. Like, I just want to take a day and just, just clean my office. Yep. Yeah. So it doesn't uh, sound very entrepreneurial. I won't spoil it for you or anyone that's listening, but I would definitely go to Rocket Fuel University, take the assessment. You do need to put in your email address. I've done it. They don't spam you, but you get the test. And I just looked up my test. And on the visionary score, I'm a 92. And on the integrator, I'm a 51. So I'm heavily biased towards being a visionary. But here's the deal. There's just this inherent thing, especially as the owner and the founder, that you want to be the visionary. But if there's not a creativity there, which we can talk about this again, because I just took my team th through the six types of working genius. It was phenomenal. But you know, as a visionary, if you recognize that you're a better integrator, consider hiring a visionary. Now that seems like you're demoting yourself. It's almost like starting a business and you hire a CEO. A lot of great pioneers Start the business, run for five years and then hire a founder. You're like, yeah, what? Exactly. But it's really like, if you want your business to succeed, you'll put yourself and your employees in the best places where they're gifted. And here's the thing that I like about the integrators. 
You have the visionary, which is CEO, that type of thing, obviously visionary. The integrator, if there's a tie, the win goes to the integrator. So from the position of a humble leader, a founder that is says, hey, I'm just better as an integrator and I hire the visionary, you still do have final say. That's the one thing that's comforting in that position. Well, I'm going to go take that test at Rocket Fuel University and see what it says. And then we will catch up next week. I'd love to. That's great. Thanks a lot, Jay. Mm-hmm.